I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. thinking this is too small or like well it's too small we have to make sure that we're not all coming in on each other's microphones if possible it's oh, it's yeah. better if the table's round too That's, for eye yeah. lines if you have four people it's yep. so much better for eye lines if you yeah, have, yeah if it's round yeah also for knighthood <laughs> <laughs> well then no one's the leader <laughs> except that one of them is <laughs> You know, he's the he's the fucking <laughs> king. Wait, and, the, and then in the round table, did like King Arthur sit a little higher? Did you think he had like like the uh, the, the chair equivalent of platform shoes? He no. sat like a little bit higher. Oh, come well, on. I, I think it's with King Arthur that uh, everyone still knows that you're the king, even if you're just one of the guys. It's oh. kind of like in the movie Ex Machina, where yeah, you're hanging out with your boss Oscar Isaac, but he's letting you know, hey, it's all fun, but I can still fire you. <laughs> and I want you to understand the power dynamic has not changed. Yeah. And yeah. I want to keep you nice and intimidated through this fun weekend. Yes, that's right. I think he, you, you could take... Oh, go ahead. You no, know, I was going to say, he had to have had a throne, right? Yes. I mean, come on. If you're the king, you got to have a throne and a crown, right? I, I just assumed that the round table was not in the throne room, that there was, like, another room that they went to. Kind of like the... Like uh, Valverde. No, it's kind of like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the throne is not in here. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, well, no, no. Again, I think every fictional version of King Arthur I've seen, when he's in armor, his helmet has a crown built onto it. Which, oh, yeah. I've, I don't know if that's a good idea in terms of actual warfare, because I remember that, you know, what was that thing in Vietnam? You just don't fucking salute people because someone <laughs> will pick you off. I mean, you know, that's, you know, it's like, Kill the guy with the fucking golden crown on his helmets. <laughs> well, what is it also? They said, so we have a conception of Vikings as having horned helmets. Mm-hmm. And that's that would be a terrible idea in battle because someone could just grab the horn and pull you down. Basically, mm-hmm. pull, pull your body. It's why bouncers don't wear ties. You'll never see a bouncer at a bar wear a tie yes. because no one wants to be grabbed by the, basically grabbed by the neck if someone's trying to be an asshole. Yeah, that, that does make sense. It, I think that's also probably where they got rid of ties on cop uniforms. Over time, because remember, yep. if you look at a lot of old police uniforms, they did have a tie built yep. on, and after a while, they a lot of those they just tuck it into the shirt, and then they just got rid of it completely. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, unless it's a clip on. Yeah, <laughs> no, they could just they could just have it like a t shirt that shows a tie on it. That's that's what they should do. They should get a bow tie. <laughs> Why not? Why not just go full tux? Right? Yeah. full tux t shirt, <laughs> tails, tops and top hat and tails. Oh, your local man. police force. I speaking of just uniforms that need to come back, and I don't even know if this was ever a real thing or if it's just a movie thing, but uh, a mayor wearing a top hat and a sash that just says mayor on it <laughs> was that ever real? That seems like a Looney Tunes thing, like a visual gag that was created for a children's cartoon back in the old serial days. I and that's where it came from. It may be vaudeville, but I. It it's definitely gotten a lot of traction into fiction, and I don't know if anyone's... It's the same thing with the key to the city. I don't know if that's a real thing. Um, you know, I don't know how many of these things... My, it's like, again, we were talking about New York City. I've never been there, but my entire perception is built on 
popular culture. That what is a New Yorker? Well, I guess he's kind of angry all the time. He's got kind of a thick accent. Um, not easily impressed because <laughs> weird shit happens there all the time. And you're just like, it's like, you know, there could be a vampire going on a rampage. You're like, hey, asshole, get out of the fucking road. <laughs> well, you know? Or, or that, well, that crime happens constantly and that it happens in front of you constantly. It, well, and if you watch Law and Order, it's the wealthiest areas of New York that have the most murders. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, I, I would say that fictional New York has to be fictional New York is kind of like uh, kind of like a Oz or it, it, it's its own magical. It's its own mystical city that that I'm sure the real New York bears only a, a glancing resemblance to. But yeah, there's too much. There's too much like actual on the street crime as well as anything supernatural or anything world ending is going to happen in New York. So in that sense too, like if you're going to be in New York, you're, you're witness, you know, several times a year, you're going to be witness to almost the end of the whole world. Yeah. When, when in the Avengers, when the aliens attack, they attack Manhattan. That's where they, <laughs> they don't, start. They don't attack Sioux city. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Gozer the Gozerian comes back to destroy earth, comes back in New York city. Yeah. I mean, when Zod comes down and tries to terraform Earth, he starts in downtown. Met- oh wait, that's Metropolis. Metropolis. Yeah. Wait, no, that's no, that's got to be New York it's, City, right? Thing again, again, both Gotham and Metropolis are sort of fictionalized versions of different sides of New York City. It's the city, and when you mean the city, you usually mean New York, um, because if you meant Los Angeles, it would look completely different. And it, the Ninja Turtles, I mean, all of that. I mean, but then again, I think a lot of it is that a lot of, especially with comic books, um, the people who were making and drawing and writing comic books lived in New York City. Both Marvel and DC were based out of New York City. And so you were going to write a place that looked like your neighborhood. And you had a better understanding of that. And you probably had a lot of artistic reference for if you wanted to draw skyscrapers and stuff. So... You know, Spider-Man is from Queens, you know, and he goes yep. to work in Manhattan. Uh, the Fantastic Four has a skyscraper in Manhattan. Um, it it just sort of matches up. I think that that kind of pre-1990s taxi driver New York, that's basically Gotham. <laughs> but right. more Art Deco. So that there's more gargoyles. Speaking of, of taxi driver cities, Tom, uh, our interlocutor here, you're from uh, the Detroit area, or the the larger metro area, the larger area for, of Detroit. Yes, so that's a that's a much maligned city in fiction. I, Rob, RoboCop comes to mind. That's yeah. right. Yeah. There's yep. a reference in the Goonies because remember Data was supposed to be moving there with his family. Oh yes, yes. Like, oh, you're moving to Detroit. And he's like, yeah, and he's like, you know, that's home of Motown, and and uh, Mouth goes, yeah, it's also the place with the highest murder rate in the country. <laughs> yep. So it had a reputation even then. I mean, it's like New Jersey, but scarier. Yeah, totally, totally. What what what's the real world experience of living in and around Detroit as a city? Well, I- inside of Detroit, when I was growing up, and this was now twenty years ago, and I can tell a little bit about how it changed the last time I was there. But v- there was definitely people in the suburbs who never went into the city of Detroit because of, you know, some of the reputation and so forth. Uh, I, my aunt, and my grandmother lived there, so we would go down and uh, go to various events at their places and stuff like that. But it was definitely the kind of place that, you know, you don't want you didn't want to walk around too much on your own and stuff like that. Uh, sort of famously, there was 
uh, Jefferson Avenue, which runs along the river and into Gross Point, which you might know from a, a particular movie. Sure. <laughs> and uh, anyway, as you're driving along there, at least when I was growing up, much of Jefferson Avenue is sort of uh, uh, abandoned. A, a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, storefronts boarded up and things like that. And, you know, really sort of uh, of that sort of post-industrial downtrodden. Then you'd cross into Gross Point and literally like a median would open up in the middle of the street and there'd be flowers and trees. <laughs> and I like, I'm not even joking. It's like it's Dorothy the, opening the door into Oz. It, it totally is. It totally is. And if, you know, you were driving the wrong kind of car and, you know, may, not, you know, had the right skin color and so forth. Right. A police officer might start following you and things like that, right. making sure, you know, you're not doing something that they didn't want you to be doing and so forth. So at least <laughs> like that's driving in there with the wrong skin color. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. At least that's that's a uh, that's a, a well earned uh, I guess a well earned reputation from movies and from movies and television based in Detroit. Yeah. Because you kind of feel like it, you know it, it, it kind of feels like it's like a post apocalypse that exists within regular America. But at least it, that's at least that's the way it's sort of sold. It's the way it's sort of sold, and I mean, obviously, you know. Michigan is not well known for their water these days, and I mean, when things go shitty in in Michigan, it seems like there isn't a great sense of federal urgency to fix it. No, where it's kind of like, well, it's shit anyways. Who's going to notice? It's like when yeah. you go into like a Walmart and three in the in the morning, and people clearly haven't picked up after themselves, and the store's not trying yep. to fix it. There's just yep. piles of of shirts on top of the rack without the hanger on yep. them, and you're yep. just like. Yeah, fuck it. We're not trying. Yeah, yeah. And in the in the parking lot, there's like McDonald's bags everywhere and stuff like that. Where, yeah. well, is it in, in in RoboCop, which is I think my earliest exposure to Detroit as a city? Of course, didn't they want to rebrand the entire? It's like a Silver City or something. What was it called? They wanted to rebrand Detroit as a Delta di- City. Delta City. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was, but they were trying. It was basically a movie that is kind of in its back pocket about gentrification. Yeah. Yeah. And what I love in RoboCop is that. The it's kind of the same thing that happens in Fight Club, which is that the bad guys kind of win, mm-hmm. but we're given the sense of a happy ending through both the music. I mean, yeah, uh, Alex Murphy is it Alex Murphy mm-hmm. um, gets a sense of his you know personality back. He becomes sort of sentient again from being turned into an automaton by this evil corporation, but and he gets to kill the bad guy who set him up. And he gets to get his revenge and he reclaims his humanity, but he's still a piece of property of Omni consumer products. Right. And (laughs) they're still going to bulldoze all of that shit with poor people in it. That hasn't changed. Right. It's not like the board after seeing, you know, the, oh, positive example. They don't know, like the Grinch have their hearts grow three sizes. I mean, it's still going to become Delta City, and they're going to throw out all the poor people. Well, if you watch RoboCop 2 and 3, you realize that Detroit does not improve <laughs> from one <laughs> to the other. It's sort of like, okay, well, they're, okay, there's RoboCop now. So he's kind of like a superhero, but he's like powerless to, to effectively make Detroit a better place. But again, that is that his job. I mean, there's a difference between him and Batman actually says the, he wants to fix no, Gotham. No, his, his job is to serve the public trust protect the innocent and uphold the law yeah that's what his is so so the status quo basically essentially but also he's he's a cop that works for it's privatized police force and that was kind of the the underlying themes of robocop too that everyone else kind of lives in this shit world and they're past the point of complaining about it because it's gotten that bad 
But that's the thing I think that separates Detroit from, like we talked about Los Angeles and Chicago and, and New York City in movies, is that even when you're kind of slagging on a city when it's one of those guys, there's a sense of a love letter being there, like, oh, we're going to do something fun with the Chicago music scene, or we're going to show that, you know, New Yorkers aren't so bad, they're going to throw shit at the Green Goblin and help out Spider-Man, <laughs> right. that, you know... He's one of us. There's that kind of vibe or with Los Angeles, it's kind of a shithole, but I love it anyways in a Randy Newman kind of way. (laughs) But Detroit doesn't get that love. Detroit is just a shithole and nobody's kind of throwing little Easter eggs in there to let you know this is coming from a place of love. Yeah. It seems like they just fucking hate it. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe maybe some people from Detroit need to start making some movies about it. This I don't is know, true. Right? You know, although I guess we could look at something like 8 Mile. He didn't seem to really... I mean, there were some uh, iconic scenes in Detroit. You know, you look at some of the theaters and stuff like that. There's a lot of beauty there, uh, sort of hidden underneath all of this dirt. But there wasn't like you know, uh, the same kind of uh, pride in the people, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, it's weird because the the people of Detroit have in their own way sort of embraced the pieces of pop culture that do, do come their way. They don't exactly have like the Rocky statue, but there was a movement a few years ago. Do you remember this? Yeah, the RoboCop statue. Yeah. Like a 12-foot uh, tall RoboCop the, statue. I think it was the mayor. I'm going to get this wrong. Someone please correct me, but... The mayor put out an internet poll, which that's your first mistake, <laughs> um, asking for you know projects that the city can do to give people a sense of pride in Detroit. And uh, the internet is always going to give you an answer that they think is amusing. Yep. That's, that's the bottom line. And they did. They said you should build a bronze statue to RoboCop. <laughs> and uh, the mayor basically, it didn't, you know... Kind of stood back until this thing overwhelmingly won the internet poll. <laughs> RoboCop was the one. And it's not like, the, again, with the Rocky statue in Philadelphia, there is precedent for embracing popular culture that happens in this. The mayor basically just shot it down and said no, which, one, do you know, if you can spend money to make people a little bit happy, it, one statue can't cost that much in terms of the entire citywide budget. To be able to do something that people can get kind of happy about, and maybe people will come to the RoboCop statue. Yeah, sure. Because I know that if I was a business owner, I would love to be near the RoboCop statue. The kind of foot traffic that will go there. Have a nice restaurant there or something like that, sure. And you can give people directions. I'm near RoboCop. (laughs) I'm near RoboCop, absolutely. And uh, the mayor said no, so these people privately sort of took it upon themselves. I think they had some kind of... Um, internet funding, like a Kickstarter or something. And they raised a shit ton of money. Yep. And they commissioned a statue. It is being built. Um, there are pictures of it on the internet. It is huge. It's like 20 feet tall. And instead of RoboCop, you know, obviously holding out that giant handgun, <laughs> he's sort of reaching out with his hand. So I guess it sounds like how Jordy LaForge uh, described the Zephram Cochran statue. Yeah, it's reaching Robocop. out to the stars, right? Yeah, it's like RoboCop reaching to the future. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and people could get into that. That's awesome. Uh, all they probably really need to do is get the guy who, uh, who owns Quicken Loans to get into it. He owns a ton of property down there. And so if I'm sure if they got him to say, I'm going to put it up in front of one of my buildings or something like that, it would happen. Wow. We should really never hang your hopes on uh, 
b- good things happening for the world by financiers. Yeah. By the, by the mercy and charity of, of payday loan yes, guys. Yes. <laughs> it's like they're all, I mean, besides the fact that they're putting like mom and pop loan sharks out of business. <laughs> but <laughs> it's like it used to be that I would, you know, I would know the guy who came to break my legs. <laughs> It was a stranger in a corporate uniform. Wait, was the Quicken Loans thing one of the things that happened for in the subprime crisis? They're like, oh, this is great. And they were one of the ones that just got huge writing terrible subprime loans. Uh, I'm sure that they were involved in it. I don't know the extent yeah. to which it was, but they've, uh, w- you know. This is what, an interrogation, yeah, Tom. Yeah, we need all the information you have. <laughs> wait, wait. Let's don't lie to us. Uh, no, but seriously, this guy has put a ton of money into the city. And that's, mm. I was saying, uh, I could talk a little bit about um, what it's like now. And uh, my wife, Liz, and I went down there um this this past summer to have dinner with some friends and there's tons of good restaurants down there there was people out on the street and it was not at all like the robocop version sure. of it at least in certain areas that uh that, that we we're at and uh it was great it, it was awesome we had a really good time hanging out down there but so. one thing that i noticed uh because i was just there a couple of years ago uh with my family and one thing i noticed is um you could see an advertisement on their weekly you know they've got a weekly free newspaper just like every other major major city does and so i was flipping through there and they have sort of big detroit parties like advertised so you come here there's drink specials these djs are going to play and every single one of them had like a reference of there are also buses that take you back to ann arbor but like oh, the other yeah. so, so basically the message is don't get leave the your fuck car, out of the don't city don't leave your car there <laughs> yeah no <laughs> don't don't bother to we'll we'll, we'll bus you back out of the city well, when there's it's, that. At 2 it's just a long drive at like oh. 2 a.m if you've been drinking that makes sense to me i would love that but yeah we used to drive down there and you know go to shows or whatever go to windsor when before you're 21 because you can drive south to canada from detroit oh yeah and uh you know go get that's like a panama then, canal where the sun sets in the west and or sets in the east and rises in the west, right? It was like, how is Canada south of the city? Yeah. That That sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a straight line border. No. Yeah, you just kind of look at it and it's like I I I've never been to never been to Windsor. Although that, I think that would be is that where you go to the casinos? Uh, you wanna, when you want to gamble, you go across the river. And... Yeah, although there are casinos now in Detroit. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Oh. There's MGM and all kinds of things like that. There, Isn't so. Michigan also one of the weirdest state because it has two pieces? It, it has two peninsulas, yes, yeah. a, a lower peninsula and an upper peninsula. But it's not like you can you can't drive from one to the other. It's like Washington has a big chunk cut out of the the left hand side where that's like Puget Sound. Yep. But it's all kind of one piece where this is collectively two pieces. Yeah. Well, there's a bridge between the two, which is about five miles long. And on uh, I don't know if they still do it, but when I was growing up on Labor Day, they would close off half of it and you could walk across it. Oh. And so, uh, what's was, directly to the west? Is that Wisconsin? Yes. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. so it's, yeah. So, so the thing is, is the people who live in the upper peninsula cheer for the Packers and then the, <laughs> oh, <laughs> the I people see. in the lower peninsula cheer for the Lions, I guess. Oh, so it's <laughs> another kind of statewide rivalry where there's a sense of this is one part of the state and that's a very culturally different part of the state. Eastern Washington, Western Washington have that? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I don't know that there's so much of a rivalry or there's definitely a difference. And you'll meet youpers, you know, because they, you know, talk like they're from, you know, Minnesota or, you know, Ayo, you know, all That's that awesome. kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, they're awesome. We don't, so. we don't appear, I, I don't, it doesn't appear that we have in the state of Washington, we have such a, like a stark difference mm-hmm. yes, in the way people talk. If you grow up like in Pullman or whatever in the eastern part of the state. I don't... Yeah, I don't you still de- sound like Washington. Yeah. Yeah. I don't detect it. Where, uh, Unlike, say, where I grew up in southern Oregon, which is 
the furthest away from Portland, the one cultural mecca that of that of that state. Uh, people talk like they are from Texas, and that's just what that's like. Um, that's, I always call it like received pronunciation for Americans because it's not like it's not like the people who live there are direct descendants of people who came from Texas. They come from all over. They just adopt like a drawl that they have sort of uh, absorbed in popular culture as 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 representations of farmers and cowboys and I don't know gunfighters I suppose <laughs> but yeah it's really it's bizarre so um we clearly live in one of the worst timelines i'm not going to go far you know far you know far as saying that we are in the worst timeline because we're not like hiding from skynet but <laughs> I want to talk a bit about things that make us happy. You know, let's yeah. have a and you know, sort of an antidote, possibly to that, or at least a distraction from the fact that you look at the news and you frequently just kind of root for the comet. <laughs> but uh, there are things that make me happy. There are things, and one of them, because um, I'd love to recommend this to people, particularly because it feels like I'm the only person enjoying this. Is there's a television show. That I've become downright evangelical about. I told Tom that you were going to mention this. Yeah. Well, I love it. It's on uh, AMC. It's called Lodge 49. And it is delightful. Yeah. All of you assholes, you all have AMC. You have access to it. Um, There's no reason why you shouldn't give the first three, at least the first three episodes um, a a, a try. Because the thing is, is I feel like... The way, only way I can describe it, and I'm not even finished with the first season. The only way I can describe it is there is a Twin Peaks crossed tw- with cr- Cheers. Yeah, cr- you know, I can see a little bit, a little bit crossed with Cheers, crossed a little bit with uh, X Files. I, al- like- I also got a bit of um, of uh, Coen Brothers in general, yes, sort yeah. of on there too. Um, it's really hard to explain. It's not a show that's easy to synopsize. No. Um, it sort of lapses occasionally or tips its toe over the line into magical realism, and mm-hmm. you're not quite sure, but it doesn't really matter. It's a show that f- always makes me feel better when I watch it. Yeah, and I, it's it doesn't great. matter, despite the fact that it's a show about people trying to find some kind of beauty or meaning in the sort of wreckage of late stage capitalism. Yeah. That yeah. we kind of live we're transitioning into sort of this ugly gig economy where there are a handful of people that are doing really well and regular people sort of trying to find a way to survive in a world that's changing and what i love about it is that it sort of approaches that and it never lapses into nihilism even though the material could go there so easily um the main character is a guy named dud who is a very likable deadbeat yeah um that he's a guy who um kind of hangs out on people's couches that he's an ex-surfer who had a foot injury in nicaragua like a year before the story started uh he had worked for his father's like pool uh service and cleaning company and that had just gone out of business after his father died and him and his sister are suddenly saddled with the fact that his father was hiding all of this massive debt from them and everything collapsed that the trajectory of their lives that they thought they had is over now. And um, his sister, who I think she was a paralegal at one point, is now working at essentially uh, Shamrocks, which is sort of an Irish equivalent of like a... TGI Fridays or or Hooters or something. Um, And he's trying to sort of bum around. I think at the beginning of the show, he's actually... um, 
slumming in his old apartment, which he lost, <laughs> yes. that he knows how to get in through the bathroom window. Oh, nice. And nice. hangs out in there and takes showers in there and has to sneak out if the guy shows up to show, you know, show the apartment to people. <laughs> and he sort of approaches his life with this sort of optimism that things will probably work out, that people are basically good, that it doesn't matter who people are. He always approaches them with this honesty and a desire to want to know and understand them. And he's, he's kind of, it's interesting how his perspective tends to pull back things that would be really depressing about the show. And of course he is hanging out on the beach with a metal detector and finds this ring to like a fraternal order, you know, like the Elks Lodge or the, uh, the Eagles or any of these different organizations that have sort of mostly a, a relic of the 20th century, though they do exist to some, some level. And uh, he just kind of wanders in there and he sort of finds a sense of meaning from hanging out with these people who are mostly a lot older than him, who for them, this is the only social venue they have in a world where their careers are kind of falling apart and a sort of sense of meaning. And it's about him sort of throwing himself into this world. There's a mummy that becomes part of the story. Right. Whoa. No, um, no, there's a, that's also taken in a backdrop of this takes place in Long Beach, which is not normally, usually you set up a TV show like this in Los Angeles somewhere. Yeah. And so they set it in Long Beach and it's against the backdrop of the largest employer in Long Beach is a fictional aerospace company called Orbis that's been basically laying off everyone and closing everything down for the past few years. And so this is also part of the thread of, like I said, late capitalism where there's a whole class of people who are just losing losing their incomes, including people who work who are at the lodge, essentially. Yeah. And it's it's also that's also part of like the people grasping to still find the place where they have identity and purpose at. And the lodge is this place that you would you could drive past it your entire life and not know that it's there, but it's the most important thing for these people. Yeah. And um mysteries of the lodge start to sort of open up. There's this weird sort of magical realism and a mythology uh, behind the lodge and all this crazy stuff, and you see Dud be the person that sort of wakes up interest in people. For most of them, it's just a place to have, like, pancake breakfast, and they've got a bar, and you can hang out with people and play pinball. And uh, it is really strange and amazing. And what I love is that when it goes into these, what could be Lost-esque mysteries about the lodge, the show's like, no, it's not about those things. Yeah, And it yeah. takes its time. See, the show is a very slow burn, uh, and it takes its time getting somewhere. It always takes the leisurely route. And then when it does get somewhere, it doesn't do it in the way that you would expect a show to do it. Um, there's this mythical like developer who goes by the name of Captain that's yeah. behind all of this st <laughs> stuff in town. When you meet him, it's not what you expect. And I think the undercurrent of all of this, and it goes to every character to the point there really aren't villains per se in the show, is that the thing that motivates everyone, the thing that everyone is sort of desperate from, is to escape loneliness. And the show is about wa wanting and needing a sense of community. Mm -hmm. And how that it would sort of approach this with all the world building that we've described and not make you depressed and want you just like open your wrist right now is incredible. I don't know how it does it, but even when things go badly for these characters, I come away from this show always in a better mood. Wow. Interesting. Do you think that was the intent, the, the creator's intent to put people in a good mood? Or was it more educational, do you think? I think it was. I think it's, it's, it is about there's a sense of optimism in the show that could otherwise be – it could feel like the wire – 
But I was totally thinking about the second season of The Wire as you were talking. Where just the sense of, you know, things are broken, the world is changing, and all of your characters are going to be left behind to to scramble in the wreckage for what's left. Um, Everything is corrupt. There's no um, reforming it. And everyone who tries to reform it just gets bulldozed by it. I mean, there's a lot of that kind of feeling, but the show refuses to give in to nihilism. It refuses to give in to pessimism. And even when the characters are regularly disillusioned of people that they look up to, like the question of, of Dud's dad and his relationship with his sister, that um, she sees what happens to his dad and is forced to confront the fact that he had lied to her about, you know, how well he was doing. And the reason she's on the hook for all this money is that to do him a favor. And he said, Oh no, 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 it's not a big deal. Got her to co-sign this loan right before he died. And now she's saddled with all this debt that she did not know existed and figured, Oh, I'm just helping my dad get through this season until the summer happens and had no idea what she'd be on the hook for. So she has a much lower opinion where Dud is not, you know, stuck with this. And she's the one who has to be the grown up a lot of the time and even bail him out. There's a whole stuff with dud and this really shady, uh, pawn shop oh, yeah. owner. I, I love that. I love that bit. Yeah. The, the theme of debt and, uh, and owing things and being short is kind of pervading too, pervasive too. Yeah. yeah. The, the sense to, to want to escape it and think there's an easy path out, but it usually isn't. Uh, but again, it doesn't feel like the wire. Yeah, I wonder how much of it, uh, Dud, you, so you mentioned Dud was a surfer, and yes. I'm imagining this like notion of, you know, there's always going to be another surf, and surf's up kind of feeding into who he is and his optimism that, that I hear you talking about. It, it's it, There's a lot of that there when, like, there's a bit where him and um, Ernie, who's sort of his mentor in the lodge, just sort of more older, cynical guy who works as like a toilet salesman, who's on a quest to find Captain, because mm-hmm. he thinks he can get this big <laughs> commission out of this sale uh when they finally do meet captain um all dud wants to talk with him about is the lodge and the mythology of the lodge and ernie's just like oh stop stop so, stop so talking about that's that. what i think is actually cool about dud is that they have there's another one of the main characters of the lodge is blaze who is the bartender and he also is the only guy really that cares about the sort of the history and the mysticism and the mysteries behind it. And he's constantly, and I think he runs like a pot shop as yeah, well. Yeah, he's like an apothecary so, guy. So he's, that, so he's that kind of guy who's just like the stoner who's just super into it. Um, but he, he's the uh, he's the one that Dud feeds off of and becomes fast friends mm-hmm. with him because he's like, oh, this guy will actually read these arcane books about mist, you know, and mist- alchemy and right. stuff. That's it's, it's really good. I, and uh, what I, I love is that at one point when they're just talking about the lodge and stuff like that, um, what's his name? I mean, because every time an outsider brings up something about the lodge, Ernie always kind of brushes it off. And he's just, somebody sees there and it's like, oh, and they mention the lot. And he goes, like, oh, how do you know each other? Oh, we met at the, the, the Lynx Lodge. And the other guy goes, hey, Ernie, you still into that Dungeons and Dragons shit? <laughs> and, and Dud is like, no, no, there's actually not a gaming component. Well, wait, is there? And even with Captain, he's just like, Captain's just like, what is this? Like you dress up in robes and speak Latin and burn candles? <laughs> and... Uh, and Ernie's like, oh, no, it's nothing like that at all. And Dud's like, what are you talking about? It's exactly like that. <laughs> <laughs> and there's just this sense of him not, I mean, people are one over him because he's just, he doesn't think to lie, but he's so completely open that it doesn't feel like he's judging you or he doesn't seem to care if you're judging him. He just thinks that everyone is a potential friend. 
Yeah, I, I think the I think the comment that I made was is that I there had he, the character of Dud has to be in some part like Jeff Bridges and Big Lebowski. Yes, and I always think it, that he's he's a little bit less than the dude because he's he's dude minus an e. You yeah, know? that's kind of where I'm. You know yeah. who did you did you realize who plays Dud? Hmm. Uh, Wyatt Russell, that is Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn's son. No way! And there Holy are moments shit. where he's like leaning against something and he looks sad. I'm like, I see Kurt Russell in the thing in that moment where he's got because he has a big bushy beard and he's just such a laid back dude. And but there's these moments where he just looks exactly like his dad. Hmm. But it's great. It's I love uh, Lodge Forty Nine. Yeah. It's a show that I have tried, and I just bang my head against the wall trying to get people to try. The season ended, and they did announce they're going to renew it for season two, and maybe that's what it takes to get people to try it, that there's going to be more of it. Yeah. But it's so good, and I think that people would really love it if they tried. I think that we're sort of in this age of peak TV where there's so much stuff, and a lot of it is – I mean, there's a thousand shows that are amazing that I've never seen, but I've heard a bunch well, of times. Well, I think there's a thousand shows that are uh, good enough. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I, I we were talking about this earlier, Tom. You – you actually tried the Jim from the Office, Tom Clancy, uh, uh, yes. Tom Clancy show, right? Yes, yes, Jack Ryan. <laughs> How is that? Uh, well, I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun uh, to watch. But I, you know, the, I, I enjoy a good action show from from now from now and again. It was. I, I think he did a great job in the show. Is, is my opinion. And I was talking with my mom about it, who's a big Jack Ryan. Tom Clancy has read a bunch of his books and she really liked him a lot. Thought he was a lot like Harrison Ford, which I didn't really see so much because I I had watched The Office, pretty much all of it. And it was from time to time hard to get over. Like this guy's a comedic actor and now he's playing this like very serious, you know, genius who's going to save the world and so forth. But it's kind of weird how that happens because you get an image of an actor so crystallized in your head. I know that... Um... Uh, Jason Bateman has a show on Netflix where he's like a drug dealer now. And um, I remember when the poster first came out for that show, our friend uh, Kyle Hepworth referred to that poster as Cranstoning. <laughs> but because uh, it is i mean because that's that's who brian cranston was before breaking bad the, the funny, thought of him funny being guy in, becomes dark oh, anti-hero yeah. right the yeah. idea of being intimidated by brian cranston was at one time yeah. laughable yeah it's like what you mean the dad from malcolm in the that's middle right yeah yeah it was almost like what, where have i seen this guy before and then you have to go look it up and you're like oh yeah, yeah. Where there's a point at which you're like, that guy is terrifying. <laughs> um, it's not something you expect, but I think we we had the same joke about Jim from The Office being on that show, but then we saw um, A Quiet Place. Oh, and yeah. He, and he's spectacular yeah, yeah, in that yeah, movie. Which I've not seen, but I've heard good things about it. Oh, so, it's great. Yeah. It's, it's probably one of the best examples of a horror movie with a simple hook to it mm-hmm. that I've seen. Because they they nail the execution, that they don't rest just on their laurels of you know, having a neat concept because there is, there are schlocky versions of exactly this kind of plot and they just knock it out of the park. It's very emotionally potent. It's very simple. Probably had the best audience, um, interaction sort of experience while watching it in the theater. Nice. Because it's a movie that's so much about sound, you feel everyone being self-conscious about the sounds they're making. People don't want to eat popcorn. People are afraid of their cell phone going off because it feels like you're going to trigger something dangerous in the movie. Mm -hmm. And it's not something you get a lot um, when you realize how much 
a lot of movies that we watch in the theater are very loud. Wall to wall noise, as they call it. Right. Yeah. So you don't realize, like, I watch, if you watch, like, Avengers, you know, Infinity War, I, I like that movie a lot, but it is a very loud movie. There's a lot of explosions. Things are, people are talking. People are, are joking. Things are blowing up. Thanos pulled a moon down on a guy. Well, there's a, probably music playing at various points throughout it or, exactly. to fill in any of that quiet time. So, I mean, in the, in a quiet place, you have a, a movie that is almost entirely, um, ambient noise. And it's amazing how much you find yourself paying attention to little sounds and how they kind of set you on edge. You feel like you're almost like a squirrel waiting for a, uh, you know, an owl to come down and grab you. You feel like prey while watching it. And that's a rare experience. So you mentioned, well, that we should be talking about things that, uh, that sort of, I wouldn't say give you hope, but are the kind of diversion that like, well, what makes quick, you quickens happy? the imagination. So mine was so far the best movie of this year, which I haven't convinced you yet, Mike. I should I, I should get you in I, on the time. I'm on board just from the few things that I have heard. Yeah. So it's this this year's movie, 2018's Mandy, directed by Panos Cosmatos, starring the Nick Cage, uh, who, Sir Nicholas Cage. Yes, yeah, yeah, Sir Sir Nicholas Cage, who's normally a guy. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but in, within the past ten years or so, you kind of just associate Nicholas Cage with him <clears throat> choosing these characters that scream a lot and they're really over the top and his choices are usually not like not like great movies they're usually direct to vod affairs and they're like they're probably super forgettable we've kind of gotten to the era of an i guess the william shatnering of nicholas cage (laughs) where there's a meme of him that's kind of taken over yeah and he's totally fine steering into it so it's kind of right. post Priceline Shatner. Yeah, probably very lucrative for him. Oh <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sure he makes a lot of money on those super like super low budget movies that he's in. Anyway, so this is a movie that, that on its face could have been just one of those innumerable forgettable stuff. It, it's essentially about um, his character is this uh, logger in a totally called I think it's called Magic. Is it called? Magic Lake or Ma- Ma- Mystic Mystic Mountains, I think. So it takes place in 1983, and he is a sort of a lumberjack who lives in the woods with his girlfriend, um, who is this kind of free spirited artist, and they they kind of live a very idyllic life uh, where they are, you know, they're either married or or boyfriend and girlfriend, and they love each other very much, and they love having a a life, uh, a simple quiet life out in the middle of nowhere, um, and of course that happens to go wrong when. Um, a group of drugged out Jesus freaks um, drive by and the leader, the charismatic leader decides that he wants to take, take this woman away and it becomes a revenge film essentially. Um, And the thing that's sort of missing here and me talking about this is, well, this sounds like a million other different types of movies. It's about some guy going on some, some guy who looks like a dad going on a rampage, like straw dogs or right. Right. But this movie is, my way to describe it to Mike was it's a, it is a movie that can be lowbrow and high art and high art film at the same time. Mm. It is a movie that's born of the director is a guy who is the son of George P. Cosmatos, who was a sort of a B movie director from the eighties and producer from the eighties. He did Cobra starring Sylvester Stallone. Oh, and he produced so so art comes in the family. It's yes. it's in his blood. Yeah, so he I think I think he also produced First Blood, the first uh, uh, Rambo movie as well. So he's like he's in that sort of generation. And clearly, Panos Cosmatos was sort of raised on um, B movies and direct to VHS movies, and that's all over this movie. 
Um, there's also a lot of throwbacks to, um, like black Sabbath, like early heavy metal, uh, uh, is all over this movie as well. There's a lot of influences. There is direct influences from the movie heavy metal, the, or metal Herlant. There's a lot of, uh, influences that are there. And it has a, it has a moment where the movie decides to shift tones so incredibly ridiculously in the form of a going from a very serious sort of high art sobering like disturbing horror movie into like the most ridiculous drive-in revenge movie you've ever had and it switches so quickly <laughs> you have, you didn't know what happened like in the audience that uh, that I saw it in I saw it at home and I saw it at the theater the audience was silent for the first 45 minutes and then after this one scene they were just erupting in laughter like that's how much it actually changes and you would think that this would be like oh it's an un- uneven movie you you uh um it's an uneven movie it's like if you're a horror fan you'd probably be let down because it's not really a horror fan if you're an action movie fan it's not really an action movie no it tends to thread that needle very well and it also the entire movie is through the lens of hallucination essentially uh. which then makes it a completely other weird experience to have it's dreamlike and unsettling and it's also in a weird heightened reality world that is probably not our own like that's sort of the way of doing it and it is just it's just marvelous it's insane and it's it's also incredibly dark but that's okay because you've you've already bought in after a certain after 20 minutes and you've already bought into how weird this world is and so you go along with it i kind of love that experience you're talking about that movie theater experience where people don't know what they're going to get because it's not part of a franchise there's no expectation it's not a sequel to something where you don't you're not going in with a certain expectation but when you go into a movie that is sort of new and strange and you can feel the crowd around you go, go all in on it, that is magical. Yeah, I felt that way. I remember watching the Royal Tenenbaums and not like... Oh, really? I, yeah, because I don't think... I, I don't remember seeing uh, any trailers or anything like that before. And it was a friend said, let's go see this movie. And so I had no idea what it was about going into it and just... Like, oh my gosh, this is awesome! You know, that was there. That was the one after Bottle Rocket, right? No, or no, that was no. after Bottle um, Rocket and Rushmore. Rushmore. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think most people, if they saw a Wes Anderson movie, they saw Royal Tenenbaums. I think that was the one that broke. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I love Royal Tenenbaums so much, and especially the headstone at the end of the movie. I won't say who it's for. But it has quite possibly the greatest inscription on it that I have ever seen in anything. I, I don't. Re- it's been so long. I don't remember. Oh, I, I'll. I don't want to spoil it for the people here because I want oh. people to go see Royal Tenenbaums. But it it's pretty glorious. It's one of my favorite things that Gene Hackman has ever done. That movie. Oh, yeah, Gene Hackman. Was He's in that like movie. Uh, he is. That's that's right before he retired. Yeah, that was right before he retired. Right before. Uh, welcome to Moose Sports. <laughs> um, my favorite uh, yeah. moment in a movie where the audience yeah. goes all in was Big Fish, which I think is the last truly great Tim Burton. Movie. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. it's the movie that if you want to know what Mike Gillis ugly crying looks like, <laughs> it's the end of yeah. this movie with the, the stuff at the fucking river. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Oh my fucking god, um, Casey, I'd be interested in now that you're a dad, a two time dad. Yeah, um, what your experience <laughs> with that movie would be like? I'd have to rewatch it again. I mean, I I think that the I I I remember the bit about him being a the lead character being a guy who who sees his own death and mm-hmm. but it's not entirely certain as to whether or not he really does mm-hmm. like there's obviously a lot of 
Tall Tales. There's it's a book, movie about Tall Tales, right. and there's this one moment in particular uh, that I remember in terms of audience going all in, where it's about his fraught relationship with his son. That the the main character in the present day he's played by Brian Cox, and in the past he's in his stories he's played by Ewan McGregor. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there's such this this chipper optimism and these crazy tall tale things that happen to him in these stories. And you don't know how much of what he's saying is true and how much of it is bullshit. Um, because it's it's almost like he's an Odysseus-type character who's always on a quest. And these amazing magical things happen. He's everything from being a war hero. I think he, my favorite bit is you see him sneak up on two Nazis. And then you just hear two punches and he just steps out in a uniform. <laughs> and it's, it's so wonderful. But the moment that the audience had is that he's starting to tell a story and his son is just angry with him and cuts him off and he's starting to tell a story about, Oh, and they found this frozen woolly mammoth. And then he cuts off his dad and stops the story. But from going into a flashback with you and McGregor and the, you hear the audience just go, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to see that story. Yeah. And it was, it was wonderful. It's that moment where everyone hears themselves all making the same sound. And then they all laugh <laughs> because they all felt the same thing. Hmm, yeah. And that's a feeling I don't think you can get at home. Because you're not sharing that that watching experience with somebody. I mean, I've been in movie theaters where people have ruined my experience. Yeah, I have physically threatened people before, <laughs> just the once. But again, I found out, by the way, after the fact that uh, my fighting style is much like a gorilla's, which is that <laughs> you you get up on your back legs and you pound your chest and you make a lot of noise, but you don't actually want to fight. And if it gets to do it, you just run away. That's the that was the whole uh, fighting strategy of the ape men at the beginning of two thousand one: A Space Odyssey. Yeah, can I yell loud enough to scare them away? That's my. That's all I got. Nobody actually wants to fight. No, and until you get a psychopath, and that's a person who wants to fight, and then you just run. Yeah. So the last the other than Mandy, the last movie experience I had was going to see the. And I agree with you. I think that is. I think the movie going being in an audience experience is. Um, is second to none. I think it. I think it's it's a way of experiencing, uh, exhibiting a movie and experiencing it that you cannot reproduce. It's just ir- irreproducible. Uh, but two thousand one, the seventy millimeter print that um, Christopher Nolan had struck from something that he bought essentially. So that it's basically making a copy of an existing film print rather than scanning one in and restoring it and doing all the stuff they usually do with preserva- preservation. And I will say that is also a weird experience because. It's a movie where there are, unlike uh, Quiet Place, where the silence is sort of part of the tension, there are just whole clips where terrible, awful, nerve-wracking things are happening in the vacuum of space, and there's no music and no sound. So you, you there's like, you know, it's a minute and a half, and you're seeing like a guy like suffocating inside of a space suit in space, and then you can just sort of hear... The seeds creak behind you, like, ur, ur, or like the, <laughs> someone rustling the popcorn, or chewing popcorn, or taking a drink. Yeah. And you're like, it's such a weird experience. And that, also, that movie has things that are extremely loud. Yeah, points like beeping klaxons from computers are like ex- extremely loud. So it's a really disorienting experience to have really ear splitting stuff with sections of total silence where you are suddenly aware you're in the theater again. Yeah. It still blows my mind. I've said this a thousand times how that movie was made in 1968. And it looks as. as, You you look at contemporary sci fi movies from the late 60s, they don't look that good. Yeah. Where it just. There's something about it that still holds up now, which is just incredible. What was the last movie you saw in a theater, Tom? You know, I was just thinking, I think it was Coco. 
Oh uh, yeah, the, the that's Pixar, a while then. Yeah, the Pixar movie. I, I was trying to think back. I, I don't get out to the theater a lot, but it was you know over at the Admiral Theater there, sure. within and, walking distance of Valverde. There's a there's a small theater. Yeah, uh, that was that was a that was a tearjerker movie for me because well, it's, it's a Pixar movie. Yeah, yeah, but it's also it's also of course about the about the connections that you have between family and trying to find. Did you see it, Mike? Oh, I haven't seen it. Okay, it's I mean it's great. I think it's for one it's fantastic because of the it's a setting that not you know day of the dead is a thing that most visually although there was a animated movie i think called the was called the book of life that was essentially almost the same visual idea that was done a couple years before um by a just a filmmaker guy who was from originally from mexico and wanted to do this crazy new idea for an animated story and pixar kind of stole thunder away from his his movie unfortunately because they did oh we're also going to do a day of the dead in the netherworld sort of story but i mean it's a movie about I mean, it's, I guess it's a, it's a movie about family yep. and about grieve, grieving and about saying goodbye um, and about I guess more about memory, I would say. Yeah, it's, memory. And I, yeah, yeah, I think family and connecting to your family and, and remembering who they are and so right. forth. And um, But it, it, one, one aspect of it. So we went with the kids and my son, who is four, got spooked out at one point in it. And I had to walk him out of the theater. <laughs> and so it's not a not a very scary movie. No, it's really. not. No, yeah. but I think it even uh, though skeletons, I, are I think it's just the, it was more of the visual imagery of it than yeah. than, and, than anything uh, happening. And he's he's young. It was one of the first I think it might have been the first movie he went to in a theater. But again, so. the, the things that are scary to a child are usually very arbitrary. Yep. It's, it's a very specific thing that happens. I have some specific memories of being a small child and being terrified of stuff that is laughable to me now. Well, mine was Large Marge and Pee-wee's Big Adventure. You remember Large Marge? The blah, 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 yeah. the claymation oh, face. The claymation face. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so stupid. It is so stupid. I was so afraid. <laughs> oh my god! I uh, for me, there were two things that I specifically remember. One is on a trip to Disneyland. Um, in I forget. I don't know which land it's in. Is Fantasyland? Is that the one where the Dumbo? You ride on Dumbo and he goes around in a big yeah, circle, goes off the air. It's the teacups are near there, but there's this big monstro, the whale. Mm-hmm. Oh. And I remember as a five-year-old hiding around a corner and kind of peering out of the corner of my eye at that giant ceramic not moving whale. Wow. Uh, and that's the second stupidest thing I've ever been afraid of <laughs> in my life. Uh, the first was at the Burien Library, which is I went to as a kid, in the kids' section. You remember those posters? Read yep. in all caps. There was a Yoda poster in there. This is before I'd seen any of the Star Wars movies. And I remember being afraid to go into the kids section because I was afraid of Yoda on that poster. I don't think I've ever vocalized this out loud to anyone before, but I have so, I have more memories of that poster and that looking around that corner into that seated area with wow. the tables in the middle and going, oh shit, oh shit, not today, not today, and not wanting to go in there and just going, fuck that, I'm not going in there. Man, there there is only one sp- scary part about Yoda, which is the when he says, "You will be," because you suddenly will be. his his demeanor changes and then then his weird. Pop- at eyes don't they look uncanny at that point and i don't know what it is it's because of his, his expression changes so gravely and the tone of voice then he takes is like oh fuck you just now you scared yeah. me <laughs> you started off being so comical and like silly like this goofy little character and then you're that one moment you're like ah, yeah stop it yoda oh you're scaring me yeah i kind of love that um i <laughs> so casey were you terrified of anything as a small child aside from 
I, aside well, from we, Large I Marge? think we talked about the Beastmaster. I think I, I think there was this scene in the first Beastmaster movie where there's like a dun- the bad guys have a dungeon and they're uh, they're dropping in like these worms into people's ears and that turns them into like oh. slaves. Oh. So it was part of the body horror thing of having having something to, uh, like pl- placed into your ear, and it was also like. There was some good scream work. There was some good like rah, rah, work along with that. Um, now I'm now that I think about them, I'm actually far more creeped out by the earworm in Wrath of Khan in oh, Star Trek Two, which is super. It's that's that's they had some great horror movie sort of editing in that to be able to sell how like uncomfortable and disgusting that was oh. having the worm crawler in your ear and then it wrap itself around your brain. Oh God, yeah, <laughs> that is. Yeah, I have certain buttons, and that's one of them. Um, eyeballs. I can I can watch a zombie movie and watch the worst gore. I can watch somebody being completely. Blood's disinc- not a problem for you. No, I <laughs> somebody's brain can cut out their stuff. Yeah. But I guess it's just it's such a foreign idea of getting gored yeah. like that that I don't really feel it. But there's something very visceral about the idea of an eyeball being poked out. Oh, that oh. I'm. See, that's what I mean. Because I mean, I can get stabbed in like the the leg and. Maybe I might have a limp or something if, you know, if once I get better. But there's a sense that my leg can get better. It, you just have two eyes. There's yeah. no, like, you I don't have... It's like an entry right into the brain. <laughs> yeah. It's not like baby teeth. It's not like you get a, yeah. a set of eyes that you're allowed to, like, get poked out, and then they just fall out at some point, and you get grown-up <laughs> eyes. Um, that eye goes. No, it's you, gone. No, Mike, you do get grown-up eyes. You just don't get them by... You don't just don't get them by having losing them out of your eye sockets. You get grown up eyes by seeing something awful in a movie or a television show that you can't ever unsee. The thousand yard <laughs> stare. Yes, that's how you get. That's grown your grown up, up eyes. eyes. Yeah. You're like, oh god. <laughs> Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. I'm not afraid. You will be. You will be.